was the one time where he would flex his, his <laughs> standing as, as a sportsman of some note, I suppose, and say, hey, I'm Don Bradman. Do you want to come over and make some music? I realised it wasn't Sir Donald that was at fault many years ago. It was me, because I didn't have the guts to ask him, Sir Donald, could you give me a hint on batting? And he probably would have said to me, I don't think you concentrate hard enough. It's so daunting, and you, you know, you look at Sir Donald Bradman and his first innings in Test cricket, eighteen, and yeah, which is only 141 less than I got in my first inning. So, you know, it's just you know, it's an amazing situation. August 27, 2020, exactly 112 years since the birth of Donald George Bradman in the New South Wales country town of Cootamundra. It's also the date of what would have been the 20th anniversary edition of one of the great annual functions put on by the MCC each year at the mighty MCG, the Bradman Luncheon. Sadly, there is no Bradman Luncheon this year, but in its place, a special episode of At The G, celebrating the function that honours the legacy of the greatest batsman, indeed greatest cricketer of all time. Welcome everyone, it's great to have your company. We're going to catch up with a number of special guests, including the granddaughter of Sedon, Greta Bradman. But to tie it all together, the regular host of the Bradman Luncheon, my colleague from Radio SEN and Fox Footy, the esteemed broadcaster, Jared Waitley. Jared, welcome to At the G. Hutto, thank you. Yeah, it will leave a hole. It's the connoisseurs function from the MCC. Is it sells out rapidly? It is. It's the. It's a feast day. It sort of owes to Bradman's place as the eternal flame of Australian sport and the regard in which he's held. So Bradman is treated like other countries would treat conquering heroes or those who have cast lasting works of art or those who have made scientific breakthroughs that have changed the world is Bradman holds that place and this gathering through yes what would have been its 20th year sort of carries that flame as everyone gathers to honor a memory so before we talk about the function what does the name Bradman mean to you and what did it mean to you even growing up the- what the first time I hosted this lunch, this was the question that I pondered is inherently as Australians, we know who Bradman is. So where does that knowledge come from? How quickly, how early do we learn it? And then how rapidly do we know that his sporting accomplishments, not only exceed, we learn about it at school. The first time we pick up a cricket bat is, is Bradman's name actively mentioned. So it's planted in the psyche. So like every kid growing up, is Brad, Bradman is the unattainable. Bradman is the, as, as perfect as sport could be played, as that's what he did to cricket. And we, the other bit we all know is the story is the, the stump and the golf ball and the water tank. That's it for me. Yeah. That's the first one. That's the first example I was ever given of a training aid, I guess you'd say. If you're a hack golfer like me, you've probably ordered a few things online that's meant to help you swing. I, I think of that as this is this method, and it's a, it's a method where it's if you can do this, then imagine how easy it's going to be with a cricket bat. And, and you just wonder, how did this young boy yeah. do this? You know, there's the reenactment video when Bradman was much older showing yep. – how he did it. And that's some of the first vision I can remember of, of Bradman. And then there's the Bodyline miniseries, which if you're our mm. age, that was a really big part of our childhood when that came and Gary Sweet plays Don Bradman and it plots the course all the way through. So, and I was thinking about it from a father's perspective is how do, do we make sure our kids know who Bradman is? Where is it taught? Where is it learned? Is it surely we hold some responsibility for that? But growing up in Australia is the assumed knowledge, uh, this, this, and Bradman. Oh, and it's it's part of who we are. And the batting average too, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. and that 
probably now, is the... it grander Hutto because it's not a hundred? It's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question. Does it endure even more because it's ninety nine point nine four? Maybe it does. It's mind you, if he's averaged a hundred, then that's yeah. pretty easy to grasp as well, isn't it? As a kid, it is. It's an amazing name and amazing legacy. So to go and host a function like this, your first was what two thousand and ten. Yeah, so Tony Charlton is the founder of the feast. It, it was his idea to – Bradman loved cricket and classical music. So Tony wanted to create a function at the MCG that's, that brought all of that together. And the timing's rather perfect. It's As we head towards the footy finals, it just gives that moment to sort of peek out from under the doona that is footy and life in Melbourne and, and know that cricket is not that far away. So he – uh, he conceived the lunch and he had done it nine times. And then uh, with age, he asked me if I would, um, if he could pass it over, if I would host it. And it explained to me what it was, what the concept was. And then I, I remember I was shockingly nervous the first time I went to host it because he's sitting at the head table. So it's like being asked, could you just come up and hum a few bars? Oh, that's Pavarotti in the front row, but he'll be right. He won't worry about it. So um, there, it, it had a great... Uh, rhythm to it. And those who had been had attended year on year. So word had quickly spread. It had built up. And the number of people who are first timers are rare. It's not that they don't want to be. So you can't get a ticket to it. Well, let's jump out of our chat with Jared just for a moment and find out firsthand a little more about the legendary broadcaster Tony Charlton, the man who conceived the Bradman Luncheon, from his incredible wife, Loris, who still attends each year. Well, Tony loved cricket, and uh, he loved the MCG, and uh, whatever came on, he thought, you know, he could put something on and and raise money for some good cause. But he was... uh, he just loves the MCG. You mentioned Tony's passion for cricket and, and for sport. His connections he had with people all around the world were, were quite incredible, weren't they? Fascinating, yes. You name it, I have his book on names and people, and it's fascinating. <laughs> I have the mobile phones of so many interesting people, unbelievable the people that he could ring. How did he do that? If he wanted to do something, he'd always say, you'd go to the top and you work down from there. And he used to have these uh, functions on at the MCG. I think it was called, I guess he was coming to dinner. And it was to raise money for a particular charity. And he'd ring people from around Australia, people who'd done something worthwhile in the last year, and invite them all. And we'd all sit there and have a lovely lunch and listen to these stories from people that you couldn't believe. He rang me one day and said, would you like to go to Cape Canaveral? And I thought that'd be nice. He said, we can watch the shuttle go up there. So the astronaut from South Australia, Andy Thomas invited us. So we went over there and uh, it was a fascinating experience. And about a year later, he rang me, Tony rang me from his office and said, "Um, would you like to go to Cape Canaveral again? And I said, well, you know, once you've been to a place like this, you don't need to go a second time. And he said, look, how often does an astronaut ring you and ask you to go to Cape Canaveral? Oh, I said, not often. So off we went again. So all these interesting experiences used to crop up and I never knew what was going to happen from day to day. How long were you and Tony married? How long were you together for? We met in 1957 at the Trades Hall when there was a um, Kiora Sports Parade was on. <laughs> and I was invited to go there and judge Miss Football of 1957. So that's how we first met. I was the judge. Right. So that's how we first met. So it went from there. We were married uh, all 30-odd years because, you know, we went out together for about 24 and a half years. We didn't sort of want to rush into it. <laughs> so, so we never knew. I never knew where I was going from one moment to the next. It was a fascinating lifestyle. And, Loris, you had a very special tie and affinity with the Bradmans, especially Greta, Don's granddaughter. Well, she doesn't have any uh, relatives in Victoria. She's a, a South Australian lass, and uh, I was called her surrogate grandmother in Victoria. But she's been a delightful person to me and, um, and her husband and the two children. And it's been a great association. 
Loris Charlton, the wife of Tony, who conceived the Bradman lunch. Now, back to the conversation with Jared about how the luncheon runs. It has a beautiful rhythm to it. So Greta Bradman, Don's granddaughter, opens the lunch with one of grandpa's favourites. And so she'll sing twice during the lunch, and that's to honour the, the the classical music part. And then it's to it's to delve into the legacy of Bradman and to celebrate cricket. And the guest speakers that come in are, are invited to speak about their connection to cricket and thus to Bradman, any first-hand encounters, but to really capture the spirit of cricket. And anyone who's seen Greta perform on Boxing Day in mm. a bigger... She's done the anthem as well as anyone. I mean, a different style, but... Extraordinary. So in a smaller room, yeah, yeah, must be amazing. It's such a privilege to be in the room, and if you, when you do come for the first time and you hear her sing, it sets like it sets the perfect tone. No pun intended. She just sets the tone for the lunch. It's glorious. And there's been just the odd occasion. There was once where she was sick, so she was still there, but she couldn't sing, and um, and a replacement and she did a beautiful job but the whole room and I really felt for her is going Greta can't sing today and there's oh it's yes that's not the best of introductions is it no well it's a bit it is a bit like replacing Bradman isn't it as a cricketer replacing Bradman as you a know, singer Keith Miller replaced Bradman at three he did a pretty good yeah. job of it I did look that up when Tony asked me to replace him I thought oh I bet you the next number three for Australia was just a total flunk and lasted a couple of tests but it turned out it was Keith Miller Thankfully, Greta Bradman, just like her grandfather, loves performing at the MCG, whether it be at the Bradman Luncheon or out on the famous arena. And thankfully, she was happy to chat about it. Yeah, it's pretty special. Like I've been lucky enough to be out in the middle a few times for you know everything from the football to concerts to events and to sing um, or for the anthem at the cricket. And I have to say, walking out there, particularly on for instance, the, the Boxing Day test or at the Ashes when you see the baggy greens lined up. I do get a bit of a frog in my throat each time and it's not just kind of the nerves of the occasion but just thinking what it is like for you know the men and women who walk out there to pick up the bat or the ball and uh, represent the country. It does give you a taste of what that must be like and, uh, yeah, it, it never gets old. And it never loses that quality of just being incredibly awe-inspiring, that's for sure. The roar of the crowd is quite something in the middle. What about in the room then performing in the smaller rooms uh, at the MCG, like this luncheon, again, when you're surrounded by aficionados of cricket and, and people who have just a special connection with the family name? Yeah, I, I find it a really special thing. I mean, you know, you've probably hear me sort of say, what, you you really want me to get up there again and sing this year? But, you know, aren't people sick of me? <laughs> I love being there, but I don't know. Um, but it is a great honour to, you know, to get up there and, and sing um, the, the late, great Tony Charlton, who started the lunch um, in, in Grandpa's honour. Um, he, in moving to Melbourne back in 2010, became a bit like a surrogate grandpa and Loris Charlton, his wife, it's still like a member of the family for me. And um, for, for them and for Tony, having music as a part of the occasion was a really big thing um, because music was Grandpa's other passion. And it's a passion, I think, that's shared between a lot of sports people. It calls on a dedication, a, a focus. I think there's also a sense of, you know, the values of the, the game and the values of the performing arts. They're not that dissimilar to one another. So... The sense of, of being there representing, I suppose, the other side to what Grandpa loved so much and what, you know, many of the people in that room um, hold dear as well is something that I, yeah, never take for granted. And Greta, the Charltons are very special to you, aren't they? Tony was someone who just lived and breathed integrity, as does my dad and as did my, my grandpa, just this sense of integrity and being in it for I guess you know genuinely it, it sounds glib but it's it's really that genuine desire to contribute meaningfully to his community and um, and that's what he did and I think that's one of the reasons why the lunch is still going strong because it was founded on such a solid grounding in terms of the values and so forth that he brought that were so aligned with those of my grandpa and you see that you know really 
come out in the talks each year. There's a lot of laughing, but a lot of sense of, I guess, aspiring to something, something greater. And I think that's what Grandpa and what my dad loved about Tony and about Loris too, who's just the most incredible woman. So it's great to see it con- continuing and to see Jared, you know, doing what he does, Jared Waitley. He puts so much thought, so much effort into what he brings and the research that goes into what he has to say. He's such a fantastic orator. There's always that sort of cheek in what he says, but alongside just a rigour that is undeniable. Uh, you, you never walk away feeling like you haven't learned something, that's for sure. Your grandfather's love for music, did he talk to you about where it came from? He, I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's one of those things, like I grew up on a farm, he grew up on a, on a farm in the Southern Highlands in New South Wales. Well, he kind of grew up on a farm, he spent a lot of time at my grandma's place. And, you know, growing up in a country town. And for him, just, you know, music was just such a a natural part of life. One of his older sisters was a piano teacher. She sort of tried to teach him how to play the piano. She did, but he was also, I think, very kind of self-directed as well. And, yeah, he just gained a love for playing the piano through making music with his family. Both his parents played. His mother was an organist. He sang in his his church choir, St Jude's, up in barrel and yeah so it's it's just kind of one of those things which just flowed quite naturally from one generation to the next but I do remember walking around the Radman collection in Adelaide a couple of years ago and there was some audio on that I'd not heard before and it was my grandma who I call Lala so um, Jessie Radman and she was saying in this audio again that I'd never heard she said that she thought that my grandpa's love for music was perhaps even stronger than his love for sport which I thought was whoa I can't believe that you know she she said that on on tape but it certainly he did have a deep abiding passion for music and whenever any um you know visiting musicians or conductors that he followed came to Adelaide was the one time where he would sort of flex his uh <laughs> his standing as as um as a sportsman of of some note, I suppose, and you know, say, hey, I'm Don Bradman. Do you want to come over and make some music? Uh, I don't think he used it for any other purpose, and I don't think he would, you know, I don't think he would even think of um, doing so. But he was just so passionate about making music, and you know, everyone, even things like Larry Adler. Dad tells a great story about how the great harmonica player Larry Adler came round for dinner one night and presented the family with these tiny little harmonicas. And then Grandpa and Larry got around the, the piano after dinner and had a, a jam for hours, which I just think is, you know, a, a great uh, a great picture. But there's, yeah, lots of music that has gone on in, um, in my grandparents' house. And then, you know, Dad really followed that love and, and now now me and, and my kids as well. So... I think, you know, who doesn't who doesn't love music in, in one form or another? Yeah, well, your voice is clearly amazing. D- did he have a voice, a good singing voice then? He did when he was a kid. He didn't sing so much when he was an adult. He, I mean, he did somewhat, but I think his sort of vessel, I guess, for expressing his music was through piano playing, which he did uh, at any possible occasion, really. And was there any particular composers or type of music that, that he absolutely loved that, that you have a special connection with? I think for, for me, for my dad and for and for Grandpa too, Chopin um, is the composer who, you know, the Polish composer, particularly renowned for his solo piano work, um, and all three of us have loved playing his work. But in his later years, when his hands slowed down, he um, he had quite a correspondence with an, a number of musicians and, and composers and so forth, and he really loved his correspondence with Andrew Lloyd Webber um, and, and very much enjoyed playing the music of Lloyd Webber. Probably Phantom of the Opera would be his favourite. Yeah, right. So, Greta, we've heard about your grandfather's love for music. What about your love or not for cricket? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Don't hand me a cricket bat. You will never get it back. It's, um, I don't know if it's something that runs in the family or just human nature, but um, I'm quite compulsive. I love, I love playing the game. Didier, my husband, absolutely loves having it on in the summer you know, come hell or high water. I don't enjoy watching it for hours and hours, i got to say, on the television. I can't sit there and watch it. Um, but I think that says more about my personality to sort of sit for any length of time doing anything. 
Um, but I love going and seeing, you know, love going and watching the cricket. One of the my favourite moments from the last few years was when I got to um, tour over in India with the Australian World Orchestra and legendary conductor Zubin Mehta, and seeing the cricket being played just in the streets, you know, by the kids, like you know, really busy streets, and then there'd be a break in the traffic, and the kids would race out with their um, with their stumps, their makeshift stumps, and their bat and their ball, and have a bit of a hit until cars kind of came down the street again, and then they'd pick everything up and run off, and and that would sort of go on repeat. And the sense of the, I guess, the values, I you know, I keep coming back to this idea of the values of the game and the spirit of the game, and I think that that's one of the things that I especially love about about cricket and about the cricket community. And looking at what we can still draw on from people like Grandpa and others from previous generations who've kind of carried that baton through to the present generation. I'm a huge Elise Perry fan. I, you know, love following her and her game. Um, and also, I guess, as a woman, seeing that women's cricket coming up, you know, when I was a kid um, and I'd go to the cricket and I didn't really see it as something that I would do other than in the backyard. And to see um, women's cricket coming on and to see young girls getting inspired about that, I wish that that had been, you know, I guess a part of my childhood more, but I'm just so glad that it's a part of childhoods of, of many young girls out there these days too. Imagine how much pressure, I know you had a different name at that stage, but I imagine how much pressure you would have had on you as a junior, <laughs> as a junior cricketer coming through. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, everyone wants to um, bowl a Bradman, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful to catch up with the talented Greta Bradman. Well, singing has taken a back seat for the moment for Greta. The mother of two is a practising psychologist and a presenter for ABC Classic FM here in Melbourne. But we can look forward to her singing again when the Bradman Luncheon returns. But now back to Jared Waitley and the Bradman Lunch honouring the great man. So Greta opens and then we try to tap into the legacy of Bradman. So I'll spend the 12 months from the, when the lunch finishes to when it comes around again, just searching for one new thing. So one year, just totally randomly on Twitter, a photo of Bradman and Babe Ruth popped up. And I didn't know the story of the US tour that he did and he met Babe Ruth, you know, the two conquering heroes mm. of their sport. And he played a series of exhibition matches in the US. So researched those and just told those stories, put the photo up at the start and then worked through that. And in years where there's an Ashes series, sort of go back through the, the writings of R.C. Robertson, Glasgow, and then marry that up with Gideon Haig of today and, and how they documented things along the way. And just what a love affair it was that England had with Bradman. So Bradman would pummel them into submission and the more he did it, the more they loved him for it. And it was said in 1948 that he was second only to Churchill in his presence in England and anywhere that he went. So there's, it's really rich to go back and, and add to your own knowledge of it. And obviously there, there are books and videos and the like. And we did find one. Um, there was an 80 year old Englishman who dedicated the back portion of his life to studying the technique of Bradman. And he adapted it into his own cricket in his latter years, the rotisserie model, homespun, how did he do it? Trying to unravel the mystery. And then he posed, rightly posed the question, is if this technique was so, produced the cricket, it was so superior to it, why didn't it become the mm. commonplace technique? Why wasn't it learnt and why wasn't it taught? And he's sort of, he's an acolyte for Bradman. So trying to just find there one an answer new to story. That, Not really. Mm-hmm. And he came to it too late in his days. But I always thought that that's the search for Bradman. So in that fellow, there, there's a little bit of all of us in him. It's the search for Bradman and what he did and what he meant. So trying to tell one of those stories at the, at the start of each lunch and then there are esteemed members of the, like there are, there are former players in the room and then one is invited each year to, to give the keynote address. So there's, there's a Q and a, which is always a bit of fun with whoever's topical in cricket at the time, be it the chief executive or a Victorian cricketer. And then the, the keynote speaker is, and I think within cricket, they know this is a big invitation mm. to get. It's a big one to accept. Uh, it's taken really seriously. And then in the in the, um, in the dining room at the MCG, there's that 
that classic cricket question is, how risque are you prepared to be at a lunch named in Bradman's honour? And many a cricketer has walked that very fine line. With, with his son in the room, yes, generally. Yeah. And so John closes the lunch and John usually brings something from the Bradman archive. So one year, and it was actually before Dan Bredig wrote the Bradman Packer book, is John had done a recording with Don about his relationship with Kerry Packer. And he swore the whole room to secrecy and he was prepared to play some of what had never been heard. And he did. And I've and never a word was breathed of it outside the room. I've, and when Dan wrote that book, there was sort of the essence of it, but there was some material in that recording, which I reckon Dan would have killed for, mm. but it never got outside the room. Everyone knew what the privilege was that John had brought and played and have sort of all carried it in their knowledge and in their hearts from there. Wow. And you asked the question about who saw him back. Yes. So that's after the main meal, we've decided that each year we we ask who anyone who saw him bat live to stand because this number will diminish mm. over time. And we're still in the, in the low twenties and there are those who played with him uh, and there are those who saw him bat either in a test match or in, um, he played a couple of exhibition matches after he'd retired and some in the room have seen those. So each year we keep a count. It's almost a vigil. Mm. Who saw Bradman bat live? Former Australian vice-captain Keith Stackpole fits into that category. Stacky played 43 tests before going on to become a renowned cricket commentator. And I express surprise that he's old enough to remember seeing the Don in action. I only saw him once, and Dad at that stage, I was an only child, and we lived in Collingwood, which we used to walk to the MCG from Bud Street, just near Johnson Street there. And at that stage, I think Dad was still playing for Victoria, and um, he took me along to see a match, and it was a, and a testimonial match, actually. Lindsay Hassett 11 versus the Bradman 11. And on day two of that match, there was 52,000 people there at the MCG. But anyhow, Dad took me along on the on the final day, and I originally thought that Bradman got a duck, but he didn't. He got 10. So there was a naught in the figure. Uh, he got 100 in the first innings and only 10 in the second innings. So that's what I uh, the day that I, he took me along and I saw him, and he only got 10 runs. I can't remember much about it. Incidentally, on that day, he took a couple of wickets, which was... You know, absolutely abnormal for the Don. It was probably his best bowling figures of all time in first-class cricket. Your dad can actually go one better than that. He actually played against the Don. Well, he played against Bradman in his last first-class game, which was at the Adelaide Oval back in 1949. Dad was probably lucky because a gentleman at Collingwood, Mr. Ryder, who was an Australian captain and test selector, he was very close to Dad, and of course, you know, he was at Collingwood, and Dad and he had a good relationship. So he used to often talk about Sir Donald Bradman to Dad, and I think it was a great thrill for Dad to play against Bradman in his last game at the Adelaide Oval. Back in those days, two players would share a room together, and Dad's roommate was a fellow that played at Carlton, an opening bowler, and he played football for Carlton, a fellow called Jim Baird. The night before the, the match against South Australia, he was really this Jim Baird, and he said, I'm going to knock Bradman's head off tomorrow. I'm going to give him a word. I'm going to bowl bounces at him. And just, oh, I turn it up. The fellow's you know, 38 or 40 now. Anyhow, Bradman came out, but the first over, apparently Jim Baird bounced him a couple of times, and quick as a flash, Bradman hooked him for four, always along the ground, of course. And, uh, and it just showed how good the guy was, even in his last game was able to produce, you know, and incidentally in that game, he caught that out. So, you know, there was some notoriety to being out, caught Bradman, who was probably his second last catch, I think, in, in first-class cricket. So, Keith, what did your dad actually say about Bradman, the batsman? There were two, two great players at the time, and one was Wally Hammond, the English player, great player, and Don Bradman. And dad always said that Haddon was better to watch than... Bradman, he was more graceful, whereas Bradman was just an accumulator of runs. And when you look at his record, it was absolutely you know, enormous. So, you know, yeah, the greatest batsman of all time ever to have played the game of cricket. And what was your experiences of him as an administrator and selector as you were making your way, Stacky? He was a, an intimidating figure. 
you know, he was a, an amazing character. You know, and let's face it, people that are as great like him, they do have enemies. And a lot of it's caused through jealousy. And, you know, he was just so good. But, you know, he was an intimidating figure. And I can remember when I first came into playing first-class cricket, and he was an Australian selector along with Mr. Ryder. And you always knew whether he was sitting, whether it be in the, the members' box at the MCG or at the Sydney Cricket Ground on the second tier there, or the square leg at the Adelaide Oval. You could always see it, and suddenly someone would say, Braddles was here, or the Don's here. And you used to tense up a little bit because you always felt that as a player you were under the microscope. How much would it affect you if you were out there? Would you notice it and then become a little perturbed and, as you said, a little bit nervous? Or was it something that you could drive you to, to bat better? You were always feeling you were, you were being assessed. You used to come in, just come into the room and have a cup of tea and never used to say much. But you always knew he was there. Mind you, it became more important when they were to pick a team to go overseas to play in England or play in South Africa or a touring team because you desperately wanted to be there. You always felt as though, you know, you had to do the right thing and you never called him, you know, Mr. Bradman or you never called him, or you may have called him Sir Donald, but, you know, it was it was always on that, that basis. But uh, being alongside Ian Chapley probably influenced me a little bit in the anti-Bradman era sort of thing that we went through and, I had a little bit of a, a run-in with him. It was Bill Laurie's last test match, in fact, and Dennis Lilly's first test match at the Adelaide Oval. And English captain Ray Illingworth didn't enforce the follow-on. Uh, he batted again, and we went into bat on, on the fourth day, uh, just after tea. And I think we were one down at Stumps, and Bill had got out, and Ian Chuck and myself were still there. And we batted through till after tea, and we ended up forcing a draw, which was great because we meant to go to the Sydney Test match, and whoever won that Test match won the Ashes. So anyhow, I'm sitting there, and it was a real hot day. And as I mentioned, I got out just after tea, and never been the fittest bloke, Anthony. I, you know, it's pretty knackered sort of thing. Anyhow, after play, I'm sitting there on the hot room and packing my bag and putting my boots in, and a few other things, and I see this little pair of black shoes and grey pair of pants perched just to the right of where I was packing my bag and I knew it was Sedona. I looked up and gave Sedona. And he said, well done. He said, I didn't think you had it in you to concentrate so long. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, God, why didn't he say, you know, well played or it was great that we got out with a draw and good innings. And I felt a bit taken aback by it because, you know, obviously he didn't think much of my concentration. Anyhow, from that moment on, I became a bit aggro and a bit sort of anti-Bradman. Not that he would have noticed, I don't think, but I never went and sat when Victoria played there. I didn't go and sit down at the official table. I sat with the team and I didn't wear the blaze or I became oh, you know, a nasty type of character, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and anyhow, I didn't realise this many years later where I was in the commentary box at the Adelaide Oval and Darren Lehman was working with us and Greg Blewett at that stage was it was quite a good player, but he was playing across the ball and getting bowled and LBW all the time. I said to Darren Lehman, I said, look, his footwork's all astray. All he needs to do is just do this and gave him a couple of suggestions. And Darren said, look, come around after the game and have a chat to him. So I did. I waited to after the game and went around. I was standing outside the South Australian dressing room and Greg Blewett came out with a pair of pads on and a bat in his hand and and I said, oh, okay, Greg, um, fifth stack time. I said, look, you know, Darren said, that. he said, oh, don't worry about it. He said, I know what I'm doing wrong. He said, I'm just going down next to work on it now. He said, everything's okay, mate. And there were a few people around. I felt as big as a thruppany bit. And I felt, and at that moment, I realized it wasn't Sir Donald that was at fault many years ago when he said, I didn't think you'd have it concentrate so long. It was me because I didn't have the guts to ask him at any stage so, Donald, could you give me a hint on batting? And he probably would have said to me, Anthony, I don't think you concentrate hard enough. Mm. So after that, I often thought I should have dropped him a letter saying you know, how stupid I was to have carried on because it wasn't your fault. Not that it would have worried him. But, you know, he was an enormous figure and still is. Was it different in, in that era in terms of how communication was between selectors? And may, maybe it's not different. It's, it still gets talked about these days, doesn't it, I suppose, to some degree? <laughs> People were hardened people back in those days. I think today there's a lot of 
soft people around that they can't take criticism and, uh, you know, they struggle to cope with failures. And, you know, back in our day, one of the things you loved playing cricket for was that it got you out of going to the office, out of going to work. So it was really important for you to, you know, to play cricket and to go on a tour of England five and a half months. But the communication was virtually zilch. And if I was a selector even today, I would not be saying much to players. Players always want excuses. And I often say to people, the school book tells the excuse. Sometimes it may be tainted. Sometimes it may be discoloured. But in general, the school book tells the real tale. The selectors nowadays didn't say anything to you because it can be misinterpreted. So you've got to be very guarded in what you say to players. Back in our day, there was none like even when you got picked for Australia, I, when I got picked for Australia, my wife and myself and Peter, our youngest son, we only had one at the time, we were parked at the corner of Princess Street and Nicholson Street in Carlton and the nine o'clock news came on and it said, oh, there's been changes from the Sydney Test team for the Adelaide Test and there's three or four changes. Peter Allen was in and Ian Chappell was in and I was in and that's when I heard it. In a little Volkswagen car, and that was the communication. And back in those days, when you got your, your blazer or your cap, it came in the mail, and you really didn't have an opportunity even to say if you had a big head. You just got whatever cap they sent you. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful Keith Stackpole with his memories of Don Bradman. Now be sure to listen to our bonus episode for more of Keith's reflections and insights in his journey in cricket, including the day he turned down the biggest job in Australian cricket. At one stage, they did get in touch with me, the Australian Cricket Board, when Bobby Simpson was ill, and they said to me, would you like to coach Australia? Probably the only regret I probably have got in cricket is that, you know, I would have loved to have done that at some stage. Keith Stackpole, who has so many stories about his time in the game and great links with both Victorian cricket and the MCC. Now, back to the Bradman lunch and Jared Waitley. He had such a formidable record at the MCG, so to peer out the window and that know that it's there. So um, yeah, they, we try to keep that uh, that personal touch, which John brings every year. And with Greta and John in the room, I, I think everybody realised it, it feels like a privilege to be in that gathering. Um, it, it's got a really, um, it, yeah, it's my favourite function of the year, bar none. Because any function at the MCG has that special touch to it when you can look out onto the playing field. But when it's mixed in with the legacy of the greatest ever cricketer and maybe sportsman, that's uh, that's quite something, isn't it? Yep, yep. And bring a something from the archives to sort of echo through history, whether it's John Arlott's commentary of the the duck. Can I ask you about that? Have you yeah. have you listened? So to we that? did that. It was seven the seventy year anniversary in twenty eighteen, and there was, and again, it was just a random photo that popped up one day. And it didn't need any caption as you knew instantly that that was Bradman's duck. Could have in, in a way it could have been any cricket pitch with any group of players and a batsman who'd just been dismissed, but instantly, you know, that it's, it's Bradman who's out. So we got from the BBC, the extended commentary. So Rex Alston is commentating and he hands over to a young John Arlett and Arlett begins. Well, I don't know. If I'm as deadly as you, Rex, Rex had just taken a wicket. I don't expect to get a wicket, but it's rather good to be here when Don Bradman comes into bat in his last test. And now here's Holly to bowl to him from the Vauxhall end. And it unfolds, Arlett goes two slips and silly mid-off and a forward short leg close to him as Holly pitches the ball up slowly and a pause. He's bowled. Bradman bowled Holly's pause. Naught. And there's just palpable mm. silence that follows it. And Arlett sort of talked about it um, subsequently. But in the commentaries, he did say, I wonder if you see the ball very clearly in your last test in England on a ground where you've played some of the biggest cricket in your life and where the opposing side has just stood round you and given you three cheers and the crowd has clapped you all the way to the wicket. I wonder if you see the ball at all. And as an exercise in commentary, it's that summarise and that moment has lasted, hasn't it? And Holly's, this was the bit I was really happy that I found because I'd never heard it before. Holly's out on the ground as Bradman departed and the crowd rose, deafening applause for him. And Holly says to his teammate, Jack Crap, 
best effing ball I've bowled all season, and they're clapping him. <laughs> wow, I haven't heard that no. quote before. So uh, it's funny what you can find when you've got a little thread. Yeah, it was, it's a great quote from Holly. It is wonderful commentary too of an incredible moment, really. I mean, uh, given his years of domination to, to finish his career in that yeah. way, but in some way it adds to the story, doesn't it? It does. It, and it's, it feels sort of quintessentially Australian that the man who perfected it above all others still didn't get the last bit. But I do think 99.94 lives even more strongly in folklore than 101.8. Yeah. There's just, maybe it's because it's what it is and what we've always known, but I do feel just falling short of the hundred is its own. It's its own part of folklore. Yeah, pretty poor effort from Don, really, wasn't <laughs> it? Not to average a hundred. So, what about some of the the guest speakers? So you've done plenty of functions over the years and heard lots of different people talk. And I think cricket has this history, doesn't it? Yeah. With the the various speeches and orations around the world, Kuma Sangakkara's yeah. speech. You know, I remember growing up listening to the the story of of the tie with Wes Hall, the ball by ball description of of what happened. So there, there's a couple that come to mind just immediately. Do cricketers only play their career to collect stories oh, well, so that they can tie them together at the end, or is it a sport that just lends itself to that because of the ponderous nature? Of more it's than a, most. It's a great question. Wayne Phillips, we're going to chat to the, the former South Australian opening batsman and, and Australian opening batsman and, and wicketkeeper who was a great mate of David Hooks and Hooksy, who I used to work with. I came to the conclusion that cricketers have better stories and can tell them better yeah. than any other sports people. And I kind of talked to him about why that was. And he, he, I think we came to the conclusion they just spend so much time in the rooms. There's just so much time away and you can... Things happen and then you get the time to tell those stories. And, and there's a reverence to it as well, I think, yep. when it comes to these sort of speeches, isn't there? And maybe, I don't are the moments in cricket, do they hold in our memory more clearly than the rapid fire moments in a, in a football game? I think they probably do. So, so Kim Hughes was my first. Now, Kim walks the line. Oh, Kim Hughes crosses the line. So he decided that. Uh, he would he would give it his best and hope that the dining room would forgive him. Uh, so he he gave it the full treatment and it was people were falling about laughing. Justin Langer sticks in my mind. So this was two, four, six years ago. So he wasn't in the frame as Australian captain at that a coach at that stage, but he articulated what it was to play Australian cricket more clearly than anybody I'd heard previously. And I remember we closed the lunch by saying this, we have heard from the next Australian coach. And since he's come to the job, that's what, like his timing was perfect because it's not enough just to play cricket. You play Australian cricket and Langer, it's in every fiber of him and the way he talks about it so passionately. So he tells old stories about Dennis Lilly with the chains and the, the open neck shirt, which played our demographic superbly and then what it was like to play. But he, he understood it and he was able to impart it and now he lives it. And it's not even vaguely surprising if you'd heard him, anybody who'd heard, who'd heard him in those years would go, oh, yeah, I recognize that from the lunch we were at. And then George Bailey, I'm a big George Bailey man. He, and I don't want to ruin his sort of act, but he <laughs> puts on each shirt from the phases of his career. So he starts in his, um, in his club shirt for Tasmania and then it becomes the Tasmanian shirt and then it becomes the Australian 2020 shirt and the Australian test shirt. And so he sort of undresses with each layer of the story is a brilliant way to do it. And then Simon Kadich, who's so reverential to the, to the history of test cricket and to Bradman's legacy. It's just beautiful the way that, he speaks he did last year so anyone who's been you'll you'll have your favorites the ones that live with you and they it's a great list is Mike Hussey and Doug Walters was another in the Kim Hughes class he just laid it all out there and <laughs> judge me as you will I'm giving you the the best part of it all so it's yeah I think that it makes the odd committeeman sweat depending on who's accepted the invitation but um, they're all brilliantly received and always pitched perfectly around the Bradman feast day. What gives a function the air that when you get yeah. up to speak and, and do you know after 30 seconds how something's going to be received, what the Sometimes, feel of the day is? So this has got a purpose. So this, what sets this apart as opposed to 
say, the lunch that opens the footy season or the key fundraiser for a club, which are a little bit, this has a reverential purpose. Mm. People are legitimately there to honour the feast day of Bradman's birth. People will go with you wherever you take them. There's sort of, there's a little bit of a, it makes me nervous on the front as I hope I've got my Bradman material in order today because there is a bit of an expectation that we're here to hear and learn about Bradman and to celebrate Bradman. So you don't want to just drift into that one, I don't think, unprepared. But if you make the, people just go with you and if you've just got the right little bits and all the speakers, I think, would find that as well. So what sets this apart is people are there for a very clear reason and if you on the reason um, everyone sort of leaves happy the host of the Bradman luncheon Jared Waitley giving us an insight into why the event will be so missed this year well, as I said, Wayne Phillips was a dashing South Australian batsman who not only made an incredible 159 not out on test debut, but also went on to be an Australian wicketkeeper. Phillips is also an entertaining storyteller, which I guess is why we let a crow eater come here to be guest speaker at the Bradman Luncheon back in 2012. Wayne Phillips, <laughs> welcome to you. Great to chat. Thank you so much, mate. Good to chat with you. Yes, uh, we are, I, yeah, I think I was somewhere in the top, you know, 30 of people they asked uh, to, to speak at the Bradman lunch. And, uh, yeah, when the other 29 couldn't, uh, yeah, eventually I, I committed to the MCC members and it was just the most wonderful event. Quite daunting, obviously, that the MCG, they're that members area. But, wow, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great, uh, a great thrill and, and to, to be asked by the MCC was tremendous. I mean, the only reason I said I wasn't sure why we let you in was because you're South Australian and really, <laughs> we, we don't tend to like too many South Australians. We have made a few exceptions over the years, though. Uh, yes, you have. Yeah, you embraced Hooksy pretty well when he wandered across the border and, uh, yeah, he, he did very well. I think uh, Malcolm Blight, um, yeah, another one from a different sport, uh, yeah, did, did very nicely over there and was very, very popular. But, yeah, I reckon that just about sees us out. Wayne, um, any time you get to speak or have some sort of involvement at the MCG, it is special. Was it special for you? Quite, yeah. It was amazing. I'd, I'd done some time with um, uh, Mark Anderson, DOS, uh, you know, member services there for the MCC, and we'd been mates. He'd been away at some junior tournaments, you know, his involvement, and we'd struck up a bit of a relationship. And, uh, yeah, and then he, he made this call and, and let me know, and I had a look at the previous, you know, the previous speakers and, you know, to go into that MCG and into that MCC dining room, the packed room, 500, you know, it was just as daunting, but uh, but then to be able to speak about the one and only, the great man, Sir Donald Bradman, um, was was really, really um, a, a bit of a feather in the cap, you know, to, to think that they, I might be able to make a contribution. And Yeah, all, all reports are that I was one of the best uh, that, 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 that has been there. So, you know, it, it didn't really surprise me, to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, one of the really daunting things, of course, was um, having uh, Sir Donald's granddaughter, Greta, uh, perform as well, which she always did, and just a, oh, just compelling, um, you know, the sound and the way she captured the room and her performance, and she was, it was, yeah, just so impressive, and John, of course, was there as well, Sir Donald's son, so it, it was nice to be a part of that and, and you know, to be able to, to uh, have a bit of a chat and, and get a bit of a giggle, so it, it was a wonderful thrill. So playing in South Australia, I guess you're always aware of the presence of Don Bradman. You, you, you got to see him. I mean, you know, the Adelaide Oval now, it's the Sir Donald Bradman stand and um, that wonderful old committee room up in the, the stand on the uh, uh, on the western side of the Adelaide Oval and his particular seat up in that committee area and often he would be seated there and, you know, you got to see him and just that sheer presence. He didn't need any more than you know, to be there. And then you knew, you know, so much of his history and, and uh, his, so much of his contribution and, and the, the respect that he had, um, uh, that, that, that he was entitled to from anyone involved with the game. And uh, Yeah, so to know he was there and, and to get around. And the other thing, of course, you know, I'm talking about the Adelaide Oval or Phillips Field, as I call it, but, um, you know, the, but the other one, of course, is his house out at Kensington, out at Holden Street, and, and people still, um, um, you know, when they come to Adelaide, you know, in a cabin out there, drive past the house, and, and that is where 
Sir Donald and, and, and Lady Bradman lived and for, for such a lengthy period they did it. That was home and people still drive there and it's still the you know first stop on the, on the scenic tour of our town. What was it like to actually play cricket at the Adelaide Oval while Bradman was watching? It was a, a little bit daunting. He um, and that was the the interesting thing. I, often I, I went out to bat and um, you know took guard and looked up and and he was there and faced the ball and faced the couple and you looked up again and he'd gone. Um, so he, he, he yeah obviously he wasn't completely enthralled with how I went about it, but just knowing that he'd been there, he would have done something. But you know, a great mate of mine and a great mate of the game, uh, Hooksy, and uh, you know we we batted together there and uh, you know looked up and saw him and it was as, as neat as it could possibly get. Hunter. It really was. Now, when you speak at these functions, you've probably got a few stories. Did you manage to link yourself to Bradman at all? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, it was, and and it was, you know, you go back and you you do your research, and you know, it's just it's so daunting, and you, you know, you look at Sir Donald Bradman, and you know, his first innings in Test cricket, eighteen, and yeah, which is only one hundred and forty-one less than I got in my first innings. So, you know, it's just, you know, it's an amazing situation to, you know, have that close proximity that that we had right from the first innings, and uh, yeah, so it, it was pretty cool, and uh, he. Um, but, you know, how he must have gone through it and just to be able to think about that and, and do that. And, you know, I should have retired after the first innings and, uh, yeah, had that average of 159. And, yeah, knowing that uh, Bradman made 18, it was pretty cool just to sneak past him. Yeah, well, it's, it's, do you think that's a fair reflection of the of the gap between your abilities? <laughs> oh, no. No, he started to pick up later on. And, uh, yeah, and then, yeah, very, very fortunate. I don't know that he ever faced the uh, the West Indies that I had to face, you know, Marshall Garner holding cross. So, you know, yeah, so our, our, yeah, our averages started to change fairly rapidly. And, yeah, I think they probably finished and it reflected exactly uh, about where I was. I think I felt I was about a third as good as he was. Yeah. <laughs> To be semi-serious for a moment, then Wayne, um, we, we, you joke about that, but I mean that it is still incredible that you made 159 on Test debut. It's an incredible achievement. Look, it, it is, mate, and, and um, you know I, I was very fortunate uh, when I was selected. Um, I was in pretty good nick. I, I was in good form. You know, South Australia had played. You mentioned against Pakistan, and uh, South Australia had played the touring Pakistan in their warm-up game prior to the first test and I got 100 there and I, I felt him really good Nick and then to get the call and, and, and to go and but the, the really daunting thing again we talked about Sir Donald Bradman but to go into that Australian dressing room with Rod Marsh and Greg Chappell and Dennis Lilly um, uh, Kim Hughes as captain Alan Border in that side and it, you know to, to go into that dressing room as a debutante was was pretty darn daunting it really was and then um, yeah so um, you know, I don't know if they thought I could play or not but so you know to get a, uh, to get 100 and ultimately 159 was, was absolutely wonderful it's a, a, a great memory for me mate. What was it like in the dressing room Wayne with all those names you mentioned making your test debut? I was very lucky. Um, Tommy Hogan was in the 12, and um, I said, well, you know, where, where should I sit? And we, you know, we walked into that room. I'll grab this one. I said, no, that's Kim Hughes. So, okay, no, that's one who's captain. I won't take that. And then the next locker to that was Greg Chappell. So I'd heard of Greg, so I didn't take that one at all. And we went down around there. Um, Alan Border, that was the next one. And then across the bat, the beautiful, a big bench, and just near the dunnies. Oh, this will be perfect for me. Dennis Lilly, okay, I won't touch that. And, you know, made our way down and down, you know, further, further, Carl Latham and all those, and, and got right down into the, the last corner of the, the room. And um, I said, oh, I'll grab that one. I said, no, you can't have that one. That's uh, Rod Marsh. I said, no worries at all. That's fine, Marsh. Yep, that's fine. No worries. I'll grab the locker next to it. He said, no, 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 that's uh, Paul Marsh. Sorry? That's Rod's eldest son. So, uh, well, I'll grab the one next. No, that's Dan Marsh, uh, Rod's second son. And the next one was uh, Jamie Marsh. So Rod Marsh has got a locker. Uh, Paul Marsh has got a locker. Dan Marsh has got a locker. Jamie Marsh has got a locker. I'm about to make 159 and rewrite the record books, and I can't get a place to sit in the Australian dressing room. So that's the sort of place it was. It was just amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I just threw the gear in the, uh, in the corner and away I went. So uh, it was fantastic. Just on that first 
test match, I mean, I get the one five nine, and you know, I've got the game mastered. Obviously, and we go out into the field, and, and there was an edge, and that flew off the glove. The Pakistan batsman can't remember, and I ran back from third slip and dived full length. Got a hand to it, good effort, but you know, grasped it, and you know, ended the over, walked down the other end. You know, at the end of the next over, walked back up the other end. No one said anything. Walk back down the, uh, the the next over, and I was walking next to Greg Chapel, and he just looked at me and said, "Oh, it's got me stuffed." I said, oh, what, what's that, Greg? Why do you play cricket if you can't catch the ball? So, you know, that just sort of put me back in the space a bit and gave me a bit of pretty good advice. I thought. So, so that, that is seriously what Greg said to you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, oh, we'll just try and tame this young fellow a bit and, yeah, give him a bit of guidance. So it was, uh, he was terrific. No, that's a very good answer. That's a very good answer. So you mentioned your great mate, the great late mm. mate in, in David Hooks, and you obviously spent a lot of time with him both together out on the field and, and also um, off the field as well. Yes, yes, yeah. He, um, he gave me great opportunity. He gave me great guidance, advice, um, support. Uh, he got me into, you know, the, the, the public speaking. And, you know, like we played South Australia, played Victoria down at Cadinia Park and they were revamping the uh, MCG. And I was fortunate enough to get 100 and he, he liked the way I went about it. And he, he had to speak at a function and said, come along and you can do some as well. And it was the Geelong Basketball Club. Um, so my first go at it, public speaking, got six GBC glasses. Uh, yeah, so I was very happy with that. But, um, you know, he got me into it and, uh, and it's been so very good to me that being able to, to tell a bit of a story and that sort of thing. And, look, it, it was just um, that the way he played the game, that necessity to win the game. That's how we always played and that's what we were trying to do. And I, always, I don't know if you're going to mention, but I'm happy to, mate, the, uh, the incredible partnership that we had against Tasmania at the Adelaide Oval. Um, and Hooksy and I put on a partnership of 462. So it was just incredible. But we were trying to win the game. You know, that Tasmanian side, um, quickly go through their bowling lineup. Uh, if you've heard of any of these, please. Roger Brown, um, Michael Tame, uh, Billy Kirkman, uh, the two spinners, Bruce Cruz and uh, Stephen Milos. So mm. um, not, not quite household names. And we were just <laughs> going beautifully. And Hooks uh, and I got together just before lunch on day two. Uh, Tassie made about... 250-260 and we started the partnership and we had a, a full day. It was just before lunch on day three that uh, the Tasmanian keeper, Richard Sewell, said, come on, fellas, let's get a wicket before lunch. To which the captain, David Boone, said, that's what you said yesterday, you dickhead. Um, so it was, it was a bit of fun, and, you know, to get the 4-6-2. And they were reading out, the, you know, the ones that we'd gone past and the records that had been broken. And with that four from Phillips, it takes them past the record of. And, you know, it was just, it, it, it was incredible to, to do it. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, there's some lovely memories of that up in Hooksy's Bar at the Adelaide Oval. Um, some great photos of it, and uh, yeah, we we I go up and talk to him regularly, I don't know, and uh, let him know what's going on. But as I say, they uh, wrote a beautiful letter to my daughter, eldest daughter Abby, and you know he he kept an eye on her, and yeah, he thought that she had some real uh, future, and he, he he wrote this gorgeous letter to her, which she's kept. Uh, she's now a proud mother of three, and uh, yeah, she she has that with her. It's wonderful. Did you go past any of Bradman's records with the, with the partnership? Yes, we did. Yes, yes, we did. Um, yeah, first class at, uh, for, at number four. So I think, yeah, they, he had one of 220, which we passed like, you know, 240. You know, just, uh, yeah, yeah, that was your dream. Just, yeah, but, you know, we got Ian McLaughlin and Gary Sobers and, uh, you know, there was just great names. Joe you know, Mack was president of the Sacker at the time. He was savage and, you know, so it was, uh, it was just wonderful to get it done. It was, uh, it was fantastic. And, yeah, my wife, um, uh, Janine, who knows very little about cricket, um, yeah, when the, uh, the record has been broken, it's now with the, uh, Mark and Stephen Waugh, um, adequate players, um, yeah, who uh, put on 464 New South Wales BWA in Perth. And, uh, um, yeah, when the reports came across from Perth, the record had been broken. Janine said, uh, don't worry, they only broke it by two. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not Went sure. Pretty well. Yeah, I'm sure it would have. I'm not sure what you were meant what you were meant to do about it. The... <laughs> what the response to that was, mate. <laughs> <laughs> A 
taste of the humour of Wayne Phillips. And like Stacky, there's so much more to listen to of Wayne Phillips' story in cricket, including the criticism he copped of his wicket-keeping. I copped a bit and it started to wear a bit thin and, you know, it got difficult, I don't know, it really did. The other thing, of course, I was opening the batting as well and I did a lot of it. So a day and a half in the field, I take those pads off and put the different ones on and out you go and you keep going. So I was exhausted a couple of times and, you know, having to do that. It, it was really challenging, but I keep going back. I was getting a game for Australia, I don't yeah. and people, you know, it cannot get any better than that. Former Australian batsman and keeper and speaker at the Bradman Luncheon, Wayne Phillips. I hope you enjoyed our celebration of the function and fingers crossed we'll be able to attend the real thing next year. Do keep an eye out for our bonus episode with more discussion on the cricket life and times of both Wayne Phillips and Keith Stackpole. A big thanks goes to not only Wayne and Keith, but to Loris Charlton, Greta Bradman and of course Jared Waitley for their time and memories in capturing the essence of the Bradman Luncheon. And coming soon, you'll hear the story of two incredible AFL Grand Finals, both decided by under a goal. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google and Spotify podcasts and leave us a review or join the conversation on Twitter at MCC underscore members. We hope it's not too long till we can catch you again at the gym.